Hello and welcome to Ballot to Talk About, which is a new podcast which hopes to give you a little more about various countries' electoral politics and events. My name is Chen and joining me today is my co-host Sam. Hello Sam, how are you doing? Very good, very good. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good, thanks. Well, this is our very first podcast. I thought we would do a slight introduction of ourselves. Well, we're both recent graduates from the London School of Economics and we both met on two modules that we did in our final year. Least to say, we both bonded over our long shared interest in electoral events and voting behaviour. And we've long wanted to do a podcast where it seeks to explain to people in other countries what are the factors that drive people in a country to vote. Because very often we notice that international newspapers do not cover all the nitty-gritty election details. They might cover certain events, but not talk about it on its electoral impact. Well, this podcast hopes to bring you a little bit more and a little bit deeper delve into such issues. This month, we will be taking a deeper dive into US elections, in, and in this podcast, we'll be in particular looking at the state of the US House elections that are coming up, and the recently concluded vice presidential debate. We'll also be broadening the scope out a bit wider to talk about the upcoming New Zealand elections that are coming next Saturday, so listen out for that towards the end of this podcast. It's Sunday, the 11th of October, 2020, but first... Yeah, Sam, with a short summary of what happened in the US this week. So it's been a big week in US politics. We've had the first and last um, US vice presidential debate this week. And it comes at the climax of a very turbulent three weeks to a fortnight in US politics that who could believe that just two weeks ago we were hearing about the uh, New York Times disclosure about Trump's tax returns and and the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. And since then, we've ended up with Trump going in and out of hospital with coronavirus. We've had the debate, and here we are. Um, it's been a turbulent few weeks, hasn't it, Joe? Oh, turbulent doesn't say anything about it. <laughs> and just the other day, we heard the news that after they announced that the second presidential debate was being moved to a virtual format, Trump decided he doesn't want to participate anymore um, so that one's been cancelled. So I think it's fair to say we've had quite a heavy uh, news fortnight. Um, how do you think the uh, candidates were were performing this week? What do you think of the headline takeaways for you? I mean, frankly, where's Biden? Well, he didn't have to do much because Trump was creating his own negative headlines most of the week. Um, and that seems to be a deliberate strategy by the Biden campaign mm-hmm. to go underground, frankly. Yeah, um, I think I, f- I found it interesting that when Trump was admitted to hospital, Biden decided to take down all negative ads. And I think part of that was he realised that just cable news would become one 24-hour rolling negative ad. So, uh, Well, I mean, that certainly is reflected in the polls, Sam, for what we've seen. Yeah, as, as we know, we're getting quite close to the election now with just 23, 24 days to go. One of the two. I think it's 23. Um, so we're having a raft of polls in statewide, nationally, I mean, just this morning, we got a new ABC poll um, that had Biden up 12% nationally. In the last few weeks, I know we're going to be talking about the House elections, but we've had a couple of House generic ballot polls, which have the Democrats in the region of 6 to 8% up in those generic ballots. We've had a raft of state polls. Um, I know me and you had talked earlier in this week about the uh, drop of the Quinnipiac polls that had... Um, Biden up five in Iowa, three in Georgia, at 13 in Pennsylvania. Who could believe that? Um, and that's quite a highly regarded pollster as well. So it's, it's interesting to see how Trump was hoping that the race would narrow in the aftermath of the first presidential debate and the launch of the campaign. But it seems to have done quite the opposite. Um, I think it's worth considering, though, in terms of poll timings, what this takes into account, though, because mm-hmm. there was this very narrow window between the end of the first debate and before Trump went to hospital. Yeah. And I think, you know, given the polls are released now, they are often conducted a few days before. Yeah. So did it take into account one event or both events? And I think that's something that we have to consider. Yes, of course. Of course. I think we've had a handful of national polls um, since Trump's COVID diagnosis, I think some of them even since he was um, discharged from hospital, but most of the statewide polls, particularly the statewide polls from 538 AOB rated pollsters have been conducted in, in that short time window or even before the debates. I'm sure this week 
we'll be getting a raft of of state polls from reputable sources. Um, so we'll be able to talk about them in the coming weeks. But I think it's fair to say that the state of the race in, in terms of all three headline elections with the Senate, the presidential and the House, it's looking good for the Democrats. Well, the first thing you can say is that the House is probably, according to 538, clearly favoured. And it's something which we can first dive into, which yeah. is the state of the House. And the start of play, just to give um, viewers a context, the Democrats held 235 seats. And after the special election in North Carolina's 9th district, the Republicans had 200. Currently, after several vacancies, the Democrats now hold 232 seats, the Republicans 197, and five vacancies. I can tell you that one seat has changed hands, which is in the California 25th district. That was in the resignation of Katie Hill, who was one of the Democrats who gained a seat, one of seven Democrats who gained seats in California in 2018. She resigned because of a sexting scandal. Her seat was gained by the Republic Republicans Mike Garcia in a seat centered around Los Angeles County. Well, if you go if you look onto Cook's political report as of today, if you ignore toss-ups alone, the Democrats have 226 seats. Now, for context, the Democrats only need 218 seats to gain a majority in the House. So therefore, this would suggest they are clearly favoured to gain a majority. And this is reflected also in 538, which states that the Democrats are clearly favoured to hold onto a House an 80% chance of getting between 222 to 253. So frankly, you know, and you know, the situation was incredibly rosy for Democrats. The first question we have to ask is, are the Democrats playing defence anywhere? Well, I mean, it's very interesting to look at the state of the House, especially in the aftermath of 2018, which was widely dubbed a quite a significant blue wave. Um, I think even some of the best estimates of, of Democrats going into the 2018 midterms, they exceeded in the House front, um, particularly with their raft of pickups. I mean, most notably on the night I was watching Texas a lot. And there was a raft of pickups in Texas. Um, I mean, it didn't translate into Beto O'Rourke picking up the Senate seat. But on the on the House front, um, there were a lot of quite significant pickups. So I, I think it's interesting to dub it playing defence because in the aftermath of 2018, you're defending quite a lot of seats that in theory should be quite hotly contested. And for some reason, they just don't seem to be. Yeah, I think to be honest, the only ones that I can think of off the top of my head are Minnesota 7, which is Colin Peterson, the chair of the House Agriculture Committee. Mm -hmm. And the only reason why he's in real danger is because he's representing a district that voted for Trump for over 30 points. And in this era of hyper-partisanship, which means that voters very often do not split their tickets, they often vote one party down the ticket, it increases his chance of losing, in particularly with such a high partisan with his constituents like Donald Trump a lot mm -hmm. and he's facing a credible opponent in a woman who has run as a lieutenant governor in the last Minnesota gubernatorial elections and you could argue that South Carolina first which is Joe Cunningham's seat and Kendrick Horn which was a real surprise for the Democrats to pick up a seat in Oklahoma yeah. something they haven't done for a while um, are probably the other two seats which probably come spring to my mind as two examples of seats in which the Democrats clearly are going to be in a bit of a fight because um, they both voted Trump by double yeah. digits. But yeah, at the same time, you know, some, um, some House ratings have put Cunningham's seat as lean Democrat and they both represent areas in which we both saw, well, certainly in Cunningham's case and Kendrick Horn's case, of areas in which the Democrats did well in suburbs in the 2018 elections and clearly the momentum there has not swung back the other way. Yeah. And I find it I find it particularly interesting um, the Minnesota case uh, because Minnesota was a state obviously I think we can both acknowledge was everyone assumed was going to be very much on the table uh, this this cycle in in all three in all three races whether it be the presidential it's it's widely regarded as one of Trump's biggest pickup opportunities. Um, not that that seems to be on the radar anymore, but it was widely regarded as if he was going to pick up a Clinton state, it was going to be that one. And in terms of the Senate, it was widely assumed that Tina Smith would would have a, a real tussle on her hands. And, and, and in terms of polling, it doesn't seem to be that way. So I find it interesting that we're discussing Minnesota as one of the key defences, especially considering that that wider picture. 
Well, actually, to be honest, you just have to look at the House picture because yeah. in, a, in, a, in, a, in an election, in the 2018 election, which where the Democrats gained 40 net seats, mm. the fact that they, it was a net draw, having lost both the first and the seventh, but gaining the second and the third, it was a net draw in Minnesota, suggested that something, you know, there were shifting political coalitions at the very least. Um, but the reality is, is that, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this in future podcasts when we get to talk about Midwest in a few yeah. podcast time, is that in Minnesota, you know, breaking the twin, you have to reduce the Democratic vote in Twin Cities. Mm-hmm. And yes, it might be where Black Lives Matter movement, you know, had its reemergence this year, but it frankly hasn't moved any votes. Um, the floor has not fallen off the Democrats, despite no. what Republicans have been trying to do. But... Um, I think we can broadly consider it's not only suburban characteristics is that beyond that are there also individual factors you reckon about why so many 2018 democrats are holding up so well in these trump districts i think there's quite a lot of cases in which it's very much a, a candidate driven um candidate driven vote because one thing the democrats did very effectively in my opinion in 2018 was put up quite compelling candidates. So it became not just about general excitement about the Democratic Party versus disdain for the Republicans and Trump being at the top of the ticket, but it became about um, palpable enthusiasm for effective operators and people who would be effective representatives. So I think that definitely plays, I think that definitely plays a role. I'm trying to think off the top of my head of a few examples. I mean, one of the 2018 candidates that I was particularly impressed by, not particularly in an exceptionally competitive district, but I'm thinking someone like Katie Porter, who has been, who has definitely shot to national recognition um, after being one of the star performers in the 2018 midterms. Can, can you think of any? Well, I mean, who can forget Katie Porter and um, her takedowns of CEOs with her trusted I, whiteboard well, yes. committee <laughs> hearings um, that suddenly gained a lot of traction, particularly amongst left-leaning yeah. media, and helped boost her profile. I think as well is that she's closely affiliated to Elizabeth Warren, yeah. and so has some of her network has clearly been helping her, um, helped her, and she's very good on, you know, as yeah. you saw, not only committee, but on, in media as well. The other I've one I would... A, yeah, I, I was just going to say about Katie Porter, I've seen in a few articles, her even being touted as the potential replacement for Kamala Harris as as statewide senator. Um, as well, one of, one of the names being floated about if, if Kamala becomes the vice president, obviously there'll be a vacancy there and people will be fighting to to fill it. Well, well, the, the problem, if anyone in California, if you're a Democrat in California, is that there's such a deep bench of people that any that there's so many people, oh, so many Democrats fighting yeah. for that seat. And we'll return to the VP debates and uh, the choice of Kamala later on in the yeah. podcast. But I was going to point out that some, I think sometimes what has helped is that the Democrats in 2006, when Nancy Pelosi first became Speaker, she won a lot of districts by fitting a lot of these military veteran kinds um, in quite safe Republican seats. Now, in 2006, of course, the biggest issue then was the Iraq war. So it made sense that you put veterans in. I still see remnants of such a strategy, this high regard of help by veterans when I look at the main second district, you know, a district which two years ago, Donald Trump won by over 10 points. But, and, you know, Jared Golden, who's the current, um, current representative there, had to rely on ranked choice voting to overtake his Republican opponent to get elected in the first place. But by all accounts in this cycle, he's coasting to re-election, mm-hmm. you know, and according to 538, they project that he will be winning his race by about nine points. Yeah, on the, the on, the military, on the military front, let's not also forget, well, now Senate candidate Amy McGrath um, in 2018. The most overfunded candidate in all of history. I'm sure on. we'll be discussing that next weekend. Uh, but um, in Kentucky Sixth, she came within three points in what in, in an incredibly solid Republican state, and I think the military factor definitely played a role there as well. I definitely agree. So I think, and, and I think these, and they are better. They they had a good cycle in terms of fitting candidates into districts that they fit their uh, profiles, and I think this particularly those on the progressive front that wants to win a lot of policy, this could be very frustrating that despite being a majority, because the fact that they tried to get a lot of candidates that fit the district, 
that apart from having Mitch McConnell block everything in the Senate, that because of the, some of the nature of some of these candidates, they were not able to secure victories because they were not, uh, they, for example, the Green New Deal. A lot of Democrats who won in 2018 didn't, will not support the Green New Deal. And it is quite funny and quite interesting to me that one of the things that has changed from 2018 to 2020 is that if you remember 2018, people like Abigail Spanberger, Connor Lamb, so they represent Virginia 7th and uh, yeah. Pennsylvania 15, they both ran on pledges not to vote for Nancy Pelosi for Speaker. I don't see them making th- that pledge this Absolutely time around. Not. Absolutely um, not. I mean, the I, durability of Nancy Pelosi is something that never ceases to amaze. I mean, many many people have, ri- have written her off, and I have to say that she, theoretically, she could be going into her final term as Speaker of the House if she's re-elected. Um, I think as well is that we could argue that if, if, if Biden is elected as well, that it could be a masterstroke because she could finish a tenure as Speaker like Paul mm-hmm. Ryan did and not lose again because it's always the case where the President's party has lost seats in the first midterms mm-hmm. that they face. You know, Donald Trump lost the House, Barack Obama lost the House as well, and, you know, New- and Bill Clinton lost the House in the Republican Revolution of 1994. So the president's party tends to fend badly, particularly in the House in the first midterm. So this could be a masterstroke by her, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, and in, then um, it'll be... it would be... Like on that topic, do you think, therefore, that there is an element of Republicans holding back candidates and or holding back funding or holding back campaign energy in anticipation of that first Biden midterm in 22? I definitely think so. I think if you look at... Um, there are so many missed opportunities that you can see, like getting Claudia Temi, who was lost in 2018, to run again in Antonio Brindesi's seat in New York, in upstate New York, is one example that springs to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate the main second district, his opponent is severely underfunded. I, I do wonder what other Republicans could come out next time round. But, you know, the next, the next election will be the first, um, will be, we'll, we'll have to see what the impact of redistricting is. And, you know, we will have, and that will be a lot of state races are down the ballot will be determined yeah. by that. But I do get a sense that a lot of Republicans are holding fire, and it's easier to run a sort of check and balance approach um, in in when you have one party that looks like on the stage of it going to control the House, yeah. potentially the presidency, and even favored now for the Senate. And Americans traditionally do not like one party controlling all three levers of Congress. I mean, the only exception was George Bush. He had it for six years. But I could argue the 2002 midterms was unique because of 9-11. Mm-hmm. You know, both Obama and Clinton had two years of it. You know, Ronald Reagan never had full control of government, nor did George H.W. Bush. So historically, re- that Americans do not like united government. So I fully anticipate a few of them looking at the map this year and the fact that Biden quite early on consolidated support before a lot of these ballots closed in the House. Yeah. And they decided that, okay, I'm going to skip this out and wait for the next time around. Yeah, I think um, that leads us quite nicely onto another question I know we both wanted to talk about, which was, why was the US House of Representatives never in doubt? It seemed as though through this entire cycle that it's just been assumed that the Democrats are going to hold the House, which looking at 2018 off the back of quite an exceptional midterm where they made gains in, in seats that were hotly contested, but would naturally lean Republican if you were looking at general partisan leanings. So why was the House never never in doubt this cycle, especially considering in the US that the House of Representatives is elected en masse every two years? So it's an astonishing question to consider, to be honest. I, I struggle to find the answers and would love to hear your opinion on this. Yeah. But it was just, I think it's because I think it is because the fact that it's elected en masse and the Democrats are going to win the popular vote. Yeah, that is that is key, and I think it was sort of assumed that for particularly Republican donors, that it would be easier to hold us at a start before things went a bit down south. They would be easier to hold the Senate, mm-hmm. um, or trying to keep the efforts to hold the Senate rather than trying to take back the House, because what we have clearly seen, and that you know the Democrats being minority in the Senate, that it actually puts them in a significant disadvantage particularly in regards to the Supreme Court, which we'll probably talk about next week when we talk about the Senate. And so maybe they thought that, A, funding-wise, we're not going to put a lot of money there because of the fact that it will 
that there are easier things to do than get the house back. Um, so I think that is something not to be overlooked. Yeah, I wondered. I wondered also if maybe we'd been taking the house for granted this whole time, but it wasn't until it became quite clear that the Republicans were looking underwater, or at least ri- at risk of being underwater in the Senate, that that they decided, as you said, to focus efforts there in trying to maintain control of the Senate and and forfeiting the House. But I think it's important not to forget that a lot of credit is due to the to the Democratic House caucus in being able to sustain the the blue wave of 2018. Um, as we said, Nancy Pelosi, an incredibly durable figure, um, has managed to set up a situation in which, as we said, it's looking like they're absolutely going to win the House. That was never in doubt. Well, what I find interesting is that maybe this is a advent to our times, but it's that the top of the ticket matters more than ever. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of Republicans were successful in the House in 2016 was stop President Clinton, Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And when that failed in that Donald Trump was elected, I think a lot of them realised that the top of the ticket matters even more. And I think the House elections is swayed even more by the presidential election this time around. But that could be just a small thought yeah. that I, you know, that I suspect a lot of Republicans, in particular places like Joe Cunningham's district and all the suburban districts, thought that, okay, Hillary Clinton's going to be elected president. I'm voting for her. But so therefore, we want a check and balance. So we will retain, we'll get the Republicans, we'll vote for a Republican candidate so that we retain control of at least one body of government. Okay, that yeah. prediction turned out well. So I wonder how much of 2020 is the correction for that. Yeah. And briefly on the on the subject of the House, I'm interested to hear your opinions on this. Obviously, the 2018 midterms in terms of the House were very much defined by um, incumbents losing a lot of high profile uh, insurgents, particularly in the Democratic Party um, we saw elements of that in the primary round coming up to these House elections. But do you think that that kind of anti-incumbency, insurgency energy plays a role here? I, I, I have to say, although there have been a record number of losses, I think it's also interesting to consider where Democratic incumbents have lost. Yeah. So, for example, Cory Bush, who is one of the fem- incumbents, I think, who um, female progressive challengers who defeated the Clay family in, in Missouri, Missouri is that they tend to run in inner city seats. Yeah. I mean, we saw New York, <laughs> a couple of them, um, you know, in Nita Lowry's retirement seat and the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Select Committee, whose name suddenly escapes me, Eddie Engel's seat uh, when Engel, he lost. Yes. And they both were in inner city seats where progressive politics tend to run much more strong there. Mm-hmm. And Engel and all are seen establishment type figures, but it is noticeable that in many of the battleground districts where the 2018 Dems gained seats, such as Spanberger and all, they coasted easily to re-election. So I think mm-hmm. it could be more of an inner city democratic base reaction to yeah. their representative rather than, you know, like in 2010, where we saw a Tea Party defeat anyone, frankly, and then ended up nominating some really bad candidates in quite winnable seats in the Senate. And so I think that's a difference, is that at this moment, it is currently only contained to the inner city seats um, and uh, very urbanized seats. You can't discount the fact of what uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez did in 2018. She clearly started a movement of progressive women of color trying to yeah. knock off seats. And that is something in which um, cannot be discounted. And I think finally, one final thing we can consider is the fact that, do you think there are any missed opportunities to cycle for Democrats and Republicans in the seats, you reckon, where Democrats could have nominated someone to take the seats? I know they're picking at very small cherries. Or Republicans yeah. putting more seats in danger because of their candidates, really. Yeah, for me, the biggest missed opportunity, especially when looking at it being a presidential election year, is Nebraska second. Because it's almost seen as a given now that Biden will pick up Nebraska second. So the fact that the House seat is not seen as equally a given for the Democrats, for me, strikes me as the biggest, I would say is the biggest missed opportunity. Um, I don't know whether it's a candidate driven missed opportunity or whether it's a campaign driven missed opportunity. But I would if I was in the Democratic Party HQ now, I'd be saying, 
why is Nebraska second not as secure as the Nebraska second electoral vote? Well, I think on the first point, what I find amusing is that I think this is stemming from bad blood from the 2018 race where Brad Ashford uh, lost his primary to Kara Eastman, mm-hmm. who is running again, who is a Democratic nominee this time around. And she defeated his wife. And as a result, the Brad Ashford, who is a former representative for mm-hmm. the Nebraska 2nd District, has decided to endorse his Republican opponent. So I totally agree with you that on both sides, um, they are putting... Um, the Nebraska 2nd District is a definite own goal for Democrats there. Yeah, and and as we discussed earlier, I think um, the lack of a concerted effort to regain California 25th also comes as a surprise to me. Yeah, um, maybe maybe that's also candidate-driven as well, because yeah. you're nominating the same woman who failed the last time round. Yeah. But, and you know, I suspect Democrats will easily win the California 25th District at a presidential yeah. level. So these are both instances where the presidential level results will not flow through to, yeah. um, to, the, uh, to the House level. Yeah. And I think very quickly on the Republican side, the shenanigans with Virginia 5th, frankly, where you've got a pretty conservative Republican and his only crime seems to be officiating a gay wedding, really, <laughs> being defeated at a convention, which is frankly bizarre, really. So, and now, and the Democrats in return have nominated a black doctor which seems to be actually, when you look more of it, a stroke of genius, actually. Yeah. So that is probably the Republicans' biggest missed opportunity. Yeah, um, I'm, sure, I'm sure we'll discuss this in future iterations, but Virginia never fails to surprise me on any level in this situation because it was seen as one of those states that Clinton did really well to pick up in 2016 to hold on in Virginia. And yet in 2020, it's not even in the conversation and it never has been this this entire cycle. So I'm sure we'll... We'll discuss things like that in the future, but Virginia politics well, seems to be a bit of an enigma. Well, Virginia, ironically, is the home state of Tim Kaine, yeah. who was a former vice presidential candidate for um, was the in 2016. Well, and on that nice, very nice note, we can now talk about how Kamala Harris performed this week because the big news this week was the fact that she was up against Mike Pence in the 2020 vice yeah. presidential. What debate. a beautiful segue that was. <laughs> Very well planned there. Um, and Sam, you want to tell us what happened during that debate? Yeah, so we had the first and last vice presidential debate this week. On the surface, what was most interesting to me was the change in tone from the first presidential debate. Um, as we said at the start, the bar was set so low that if, if it were not to exceed that bar, it would have been one of the biggest calamities in international political history. Um, but still, I thought it was quite a remarkable debate in terms of tone. I would probably go as far to say that it was the best presidential or vice presidential level debate this cycle and last and 2016. I, I thought in terms of performances and content, it felt like we were back on safer territory. They discussed topics from coronavirus to race relations. There was even a section on foreign policy and climate change, which I thought was was particularly notable um, because of the absence of both of those topics from the rest of the cycle on the presidential level um, in terms of the first presidential debate. Um, Economic recovery, as expected, was quite a big focus. And... I think some of the more memorable moments were Kamala telling the vice president that she was speaking. I thought that was particularly good. Um, And the exchanges on the Supreme Court packing, I thought was particularly interesting. How I don't think the Biden-Harris campaign yet have managed to figure out how to address that question. So they just ignore it instead. And generally the lack of answering questions on both sides, but particularly from the Pence side, was quite startling. Impressive, some would say, in how he managed to talk about swine flu in answer to an abortion question. Some of these deviances from the question were quite impressive. And who can forget the fly that landed on Mike Pence's head for two and two minutes and three seconds, I think I saw that that was... Um, which was sad, actually, because it came at a moment in the debate which I thought was one of the best discussions of the entire debate, which was on um, race relations, law and order. Um, but of course that happened. That was the most 2020 thing that could possibly have happened. 
And I don't think Twitter really discussed the fly, but I saw an odd tweet or two about it um, floating. Well, SNL certainly did. I can yeah. tell you that. Saturday Night Live <laughs> yes. certainly talked about the fly. So what were but, your takeaways? So I didn't watch it as much as you, but I think there was the Democrats quite belatedly to try and set expectations more what it should have been. Yeah. Because I think from the very start when Kamala was announced as a VP nominee, there was you know, we all saw news articles that, oh, she would dominate debate, she would crush Mike Pence and all. And I'm sure, and, you know, and we all remember that very viral moment in the first Democratic primary debate where she really rocketed, a real surge when came when she attacked Biden over busing. But there, is, there was a lot, there was a last minute attempt to try and reset expectation to what they truly are, which is that Mike Pence actually is quite a good communicator. Yeah. Um. But unfortunately, it was a bit too little too late. So I wondered whether, personally, a lot of people watching it came off thinking, oh, that's it from her? Which Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth pointing out that one of the more reputable polling questions after the debate asking who won, um, I think Kamala had something like, was it a 20-point? Advantage, 21-point advantage, the CNN poll. I'll need to check that. I think it was, but it was quite a significant advantage. Um, and in there was a handful of polls that came out in the immediate aftermath that about favorability ratings. And Kamala had started with higher favorability ratings than Mike Pence anyway, which is expected for someone who is relatively new to the national scene. But her favorability rating shot up, whereas Mike Pence's stayed at the same level. So I thought that was quite interesting. I think it, it seems that whilst people may, some people may have left the debate thinking that she underperformed relative to exceptionally high expectations, I think the, the general consensus is that she was the more effective communicator, would you say? I think she certainly had more viral moments, but I think the bigger question to say is that will it actually change people's minds? Because I sincerely doubt that. Um, you know, the most famous vice presidential debate moment came in 1988, when in response to um, when Senate, uh, when Dan Quayle, who was George H.W. Bush's running mate, um, said that he had the same number of experience as JFK did when he ran for the presidency. Senator Lloyd Benson, who was Michael Dukakis's running mate, said that you, you ain't no Jack Kennedy. And it was a debate moment that is still talked about nearly 30 years later. Mm -hmm. And what happened in the end? Michael Dukakis still lost in a landslide to George H.W. Bush. So I think we have to have a little expectation management. Yeah. I think what was key was why it did seem that more people did care about it was because the candidate, the presidential candidate's age. You know, yeah. Trump is, Biden is 77. There is... I'm not trying to be morbid here, but there is a possibility that he could pass away in office and Kamala Harris would then have to assume the presidency. Donald Trump himself is no spring chicken at 74. Yeah. So the, I think there was more interest in this debate. Um, I, and I would like to see the viewing figures be, because of it, because of the candidates advance age and because we both know that, you know, coronavirus does target the elderly a bit much more. Yeah, but, I think the um, the other key thing to think about here is that it's widely assumed that if Biden wins the election, he's not going to be the top of the ticket in 2024. And, and equally, if Trump wins the election, he can't be the top of the ticket candidate in 2024. So a lot of people are saying that potentially in the Pence-Harris debate, we were witnessing what could realistically be the 2024 headline debate for the presidential ticket. Certainly he's done. I mean, what Biden's essentially done is um, um, coronate um, Kamala Harris as the frontrunner for the 2024 um, Democratic nomination, really, should he decide not to, take, not, to, not to run for a second term or for whatever other reason, really, or 2028, yeah. for that matter. And, you know, and it's not inconceivable to think about why he decided to choose Kamala as his VP pick. Yeah, so um, about the pick, what do we, we obviously have just started this now with just over three weeks to go, um, and the pick came early August, but what, what did we make of the pick? Do we think it was an effective pick? Why was she picked? Has it worked? Well, to be honest, I think she was the, the logical pick, particularly when Biden very early on said he would nominate a woman. And I think that 
had to be done given that the last few candidates were all male and you know a lot of the democratic energy in 2018 was built as we discussed earlier on these sub- suburban women really turning against president trump but then after black lives matter happened he, there was a lot of pressure to nominate a black woman who would create history as the first person of color to be on the ballot so when you look at that criteria on the, those demographic con- i wouldn't say constraints but you know they were effective political constraints on who the vice presidential nominee could be, you then were narrowed down to a very small field. Based on those criteria, and Kamala Harris did gain quite a high platform before. She was on the Senate Judiciary Committee, so she gained a platform through there. She was quite well-known in California before. And as a result, she was the logical choice in the sense that she, coming from California, okay, California's going to vote blue, mm-hmm. no matter what. But California itself is where Florida and big tech is. So it's so easy. And her connections to there, particularly from Oakland, which is, a, which is just outside San Francisco and around the Silicon Valley area, meant that she could very easily raise money for, for the Biden ticket. She's also run for president before. You know, granted, she didn't do very well. She flamed out. She didn't even go to the Iowa caucuses. But then again, eight years ago, Joe Biden himself didn't do very well and when he ran for president and yet he still ended up on Barack Obama's ticket. Yeah, Winning I ticket, you could argue. It's important to remember she's the first woman of colour on any major party political ticket. And as we touched on earlier, she's the, she seems the first viable um, female vice presidential uh, running mate in terms of likelihood or closeness to to actually winning. My response to whether it's whether it's working would be probably more of a political science cynical point, which is that what Biden needed was someone who could energise the base, as you said, raise money, and also put in one impressive debate performance. I think it's important to recognise that at this moment, just not affecting the race at all is good enough for the Democratic Party. So putting in a mediocre performance is acceptable. I would argue she did a little bit better than that. She put in quite a good performance. She's obviously had a lot of experience on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, and she, I think she is playing the role that the Biden campaign needed her to play quite effectively. We, we would maybe be having a different discussion if the race was quite close or even if the Biden campaign was underwater as to whether that choice was putting them back on a level pegging or putting them in front. But right now i think she's adding to the campaign and sustaining it so i i think i think it's it's working i think one or two final points that we can consider before is that she's also going to be the first asian american to be on the ticket as well and that is also not inconsequential as well because i think you know donald trump did quite early on through his heavy courting of modi who's very popular in india um to see whether that could boost his presidential campaign but kamala harris being half indian american she would have, she could have successfully muted that as well. Mm-hmm. And I think for women in general is that, you know, they came close four years ago and a lot of them still felt that she, you know, I'm with her and all of those still feels that she should have been president, certainly on the popular vote. Also, I think she's the first candidate, even though she's vice president, she's the first vice presidential candidate who is winning for a real shot of becoming vice president. The last two were, I suspect, a rather desperate throw of the dice. That's not to underestimate the accomplishment of Joe Geraldine Ferraro and Sarah Palin, who were nominated in 1984 and 2008, respectively. But the uniting theme is that both candidates were down, both presidential candidates on the Democratic side and Republican side, both down in the dumps. They were not polling well. And it didn't really matter. Well, both lost significantly still in the end. 1984 saw the biggest. Republican landslide against, you know, in history, really. Um, so I think it is worth considering that this is also a very good chance. And it shows you the progress of women at, as well, is that, you know, in 2016, they came, cl- they, well, they won the popular vote. And now this is a viable chance. They're not being, as in so many other democracies, being nominated. This no hope, last throw of the dice phenomenon. I think that's good. I would argue, in particular, in this hyper-partisan era, most people watching the debate will probably know who they are voting before and will not change their mind after unless one can really bombed. And I don't think, unfortunately, Donald Trump bombed with his base that would prevent him from losing that way. No, I think, I'm sure we'll discuss this 
uh, in the weeks to come, but especially in this cycle, this unusual cycle where so many people are voting by mail or early voting that even by the time of the first debate at the end of September, the first presidential debate, people had already cast their ballots. Like it's not even about people making up their minds and thinking about, oh, well, maybe I could change my mind at the last minute. There is a significant proportion of American citizens who have already voted. Oh, totally. I mean, it's and and you know, and some of these are the biggest swing states like Wisconsin and yeah. Virginia as well. So, you know, these are well, Virginia you could argue, but definitely Wisconsin, they you know, these are places that actually matter. So and we will have to see. It certainly poises to be an exciting month ahead. Yes. Um gut check. Do you think people will remember the VP debate next week? No. No. I mean, frankly, let's be honest, it got completely swamped by the news on Friday that Donald Trump had COVID. <laughs> and um, and it was not COVID, was, re, was, re, was, was attempting his joyride and whatever he was attempting really over that week. And it, it shows you once again that, you know, although these VP debates do happen, it's what happens at the top of the ticket that matters. Mm-hmm. In the end, if you look back four years ago, did Pence and Kane change one vote? I mean... You could argue that, you know, part I don't of the reason even why remember, I don't even remember a single moment from that VP debate. Well, I think the only thing that did happen is that it probably ensured that Trump campaign decided in October not to bother putting money into Virginia. Yeah. Um, but that, frankly, is the only thing it really did. But, you know, they're still able to do in the presidency without Virginia. So I don't see what would change. Yeah. So I think, <laughs> as we say, it will be very interesting to see how the House races turn out and... Um, whether Pence and Harris get any more significant airtime um, in the run-up to the election. Well, this is where I think Harris will, because she's on Senate Judiciary. And what's coming up next week? The Amy Coney Barrett. Barrett hearing. So let's see what happens then. Although, although I think, though, in that hearing, it's more of a chance for her to play the base who might not be so convinced with Biden, yeah. more than actually convincing a swing voter. And frankly, and I will, we'll talk on this next week in the Senate, is that is healthcare going to save, give them the majority? And that's something we can ponder about the next yes. week. Well, the US elections might be in 23 days' time or however long it is. It seems to be going on forever. But one election is taking place this Saturday. We do like to keep not just the US focus here. It's also important to acknowledge that there are many other countries outside of the United States. And so therefore, we decided to give a little bit of airtime to New Zealand, who will be holding its elections this Saturday, um, early voting has already started and it is thought that before polls close on Saturday at 7 o'clock local time, um, and that right now, that before polls open officially on election day, more than around half New Zealand were voted. Yeah, and I think winner, it's important also to state that this is the postponed election date. It, was supposed it is to the postponed election date. Um, she was postponed because of a COVID cluster that was discovered in Auckland. The winner will get a three-year term and this is done by a, multi, a MMP, multi-member proportional, which is one of the most proportional systems in the world. And in order to get seats, you either have to win an electorate or have to gain 5% of the vote. So just a bit of context, um, at Disillusion, the National Party, which is equivalent to the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom, had 55 seats, which was one less than when they won in 2017 due to the defection. Labour, led by Jacinda Ardern, had 46 seats. New Zealand First, which is his coalition partner, led by Winston Peters, had nine seats. The Greens, who were in confidence supply, had eight seats. ACT, which is a libertarian party, right-wing libertarian party, led by David Seymour, had one. Since then, it could be argued that this term has been eventful for New Zealand. Labour has had many disaster management, has been praised for handling those, not only COVID, the Christchurch massacre last year, and a volcano eruption on White Island. But yet, it's, and this is something that's not often covered by international media, is the fact that its record on delivering promises it promised in its 2017 manifesto could be considered lackluster at best. It, the Kiwi Bill, which was its failed house building program, certainly did not deliver up to expectations. And there's been no light rail in Auckland after it was vetoed by Winston Peters, um, her co- the Deputy Prime Minister. Um, in this term government. But that being said, the National Party itself has had a not, also, I mean, com- there's been no other word, way of describing it, a complete disarray of a term. They ditched Simon Bridges, which was elected leader in 2000, 
shortly after the new parliament was formed, was polling quite well until Labour's successful COVID management was dumped by Todd Muller, who survived about seven weeks before Judith Collins, who is quite a polarising figure, um, came to office. And here's a no, I think fact. it's I think it's fair to say that um, the change in the national leadership so frequently has come at a bit of a surprise to election watchers everywhere. I mean, I suddenly had to look again when Todd Muller resigned and was thought that whether this was fake or not. Um, here's a fun, fun question to ask. You know, Jacinda Ardern is a female leader yep. of the Labour Party. Judith Collins is also a female leader of the National Party. Can you think of any other countries where we've had a female versus female contest? That is an excellent question. So two that pop into my head. One was in Chile in 2013 with Michelle Bachelet. Oh, of um, course, face a, of course. Uh, face a conservative woman, um, Emily Matai, if I pronounce that correctly, and apologies to anyone who speaks Spanish. Um, and the other one is known as the Battle of the Begums in Bangladesh, where we had Sheikh Hasina face against Khalid Dizia. And they've had a long-standing rivalry dating back to the 90s. So... There are very few countries um, that have joined New Zealand and New Zealand itself in 1999 where Helen Clark won the premiership yeah. from uh, Jenny Shepley who was um, the National Party leader as well. So a very small elite group of nations really which I think holds special place in everyone's heart for doing that and hopefully more will be repeated in many countries in the future. Yeah. Well, the campaign as you touched upon had many false starts um, and also been dominated by people finding black holes in different budgets and in in both the National Party to use old figures to calculate some of its um to do some of its attack lines, act was as well. Labour had a typo turning 14 billion to 140 billion. And there've been the occasional escapee from COVID um and from Auckland's as um managed isolation. So therefore how, how do you think the campaign's been run by both sides? Well I think um Firstly, I'll talk about internationally because obviously in the in the last term, Jacinda Ardern has become an international celebrity, which for a leader of New Zealand is is quite an achievement. I mean, as you said, it's come from mostly from crisis management um, and has has been re-energized in the COVID response. And I think that that was it was in COVID that the trajectory of the campaign changed dramatically because I, I remember both of us had a conversation in the aftermath of them postponing the election from September and having a, com- a new cluster of COVID. We both acknowledged that we thought that this would be a turning point because one of the biggest USPs of the Labour Party in this election has been their COVID response. And from well, the suddenly mo- the polls. The polls certainly show yeah. that there was a slight dip afterwards. Yeah. But the latest coma, one news coma, Bradenton poll puts Labour 47% of the vote and 60 seats. Yeah, just sure. Whereas News Hub, which is the other big poll, who does the other big polling, puts them on 50.1, which will ensure they can govern alone. So, and I just. think that is a big question. But yeah. something which I don't, I certainly don't feel the international media thinks is that they all no. assume Labour will be able to govern alone. But I think there's a strong chance that Labour will not be able to govern alone. And I think they will fall just short. That is my prediction right now, is that I'm going on record to say that I think Labour will fall just short. I think it might be a few seats, but it will just fall just short. But she will be elected Prime Minister. The question is, though, is that, you know, eventually these domestic campaigns will come out to her. And, you know, hope maybe with a more organised national party, they they might be able they sh- they hopefully will be able to come up with a much more coherent campaign in 2023. I wonder whether some of them already think that they're going to that they're going to be in opposition for another three years. We've had a few campaign leaks yeah. of national MPs being upset. What do you think? Do you agree with me that Labour will fall short, or will you bet that they would just sneak over the line? Well, for, before I answer the prediction question, you know how much I enjoy making predictions. I, I'll just comment quickly on the. Um, international perspective on the election because I think one of the key things here in in the international view particularly from a UK centric or US centric as far as I've seen the media is just that age-old political science frustration that countries that use majoritarian systems just do not understand proportional ones because I think it's worth us saying that for Jacinda Ardern's Labour Party to achieve an outright majority in a proportional system 
is quite an achievement. It's not completely new in New Zealand, but still in the wider context of proportional elections, achieving an outright majority is quite a, a, a feat. It, well, it's... actually, New Zealand, actually, none of, since MMP was introduced in, 19, in the 1996 election, no party has gained an overall majority. Well, there you go. There you go. But a lot of parties have come very close. John Key yeah. did in 2011 and 14. So a lot of the cases, they've come very close. Yeah. So we think Labour... Um, so you haven't answered the prediction question yeah. yet. <laughs> Do you think oh, you'll sneak over I, the line? So I think that the Labour Party will sneak over the line. Just. I don't think it will be by very much. I can see them potentially gaining somewhere in the region of 62, 63 seats. Just an okay. uh, uncertain. And between fifty and between fifty and fifty-one percent, I would say, I think is going to be the Labour share of the vote. Since you since you put it out for Jacinda to get yeah. fifty to fifty-one percent, I yeah, think she I will think... get forty-seven to forty-nine. Wow. I, yeah. I think she'll fall just under. She will benefit from wasted vote given the fact that you need a five percent threshold to get into parliament. And certainly New Zealand first has never polled. And um, we'll get over the five percent threshold. Yeah. But I wonder. I wonder. I think my Jacinda answer comes from that we had the recent news in the last couple of days that New Zealand is COVID-free once again. And I just wonder if th- in the last week of the campaign there'll be a slight uptick in the late-term undecideds in in Jacinda's favour. I know there's been a significant proportion of early voting, but I just that is where I think. I think if the, that news hadn't have come through. I would have answered that question very. Oh, much. definitely. I, 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 if if it was September nineteen, she'd be governing majority now. But yeah. I think because of that, she'll fall short. Yeah. I think I will put it on the line. I think National will get between thirty to thirty three percent. But and Act will certainly do get over five percent, which is a big improvement on their one seat. And I think the Greens would just sneak over the line. So as so, a result, we should see a Labour Green government. Labour Green. But those are all issues we can talk about next week. Absolutely. And. That is it for our very first episode of Ballot to Talk About. For the next month, we hope to bring some weekly podcasts talking about the state of the race in what is probably the most amazing and highly consequential US elections we can certainly remember. Next week, well, we're going to find out whether we got our predictions correct. Both our heads are on the line. One of us is going to have egg on it. Um, so join us again next week as we intend to look what happened Senate-wise and catch up on all the major events. Yeah, See I'm sure soon. there'll be quite a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Talk to you next week. See you soon. Thank you for listening to Ballot to Talk About. Come back next week for our next episode and leave us a review. Thank you very much.